Thanks, everybody. So there's a pile of Christmas songs and Christmas traditions and so on that pick up the main memorable couple of phrases in Luke 2, which is um, Gloria in excelsis Deo, because of course it was in Latin, right? Glory to God in the highest. And peace, right? On earth and goodwill towards men, which isn't really what the first says. That's what the King James, how the King James translated it. All of the modern translations have something like um, and, and peace on the earth with whom his favor rests. Something like that. Gray sweater. Um, we, in, both in our Christmas traditions and both in our popular culture, we talk a lot about peace. Internal peace and peace in the world and um, we talk about peace, the peace of Christ come to earth at Christmas time. And I, I, there's a lot of people, I think, that feel like we talk a lot of rot about that. Um, how are you feeling in terms of peace and the absence of conflict? Right? It's actually a verse from the Bible in the book of Jeremiah where God says, My people are always saying, Peace, peace, when there isn't any peace. Humans have an incredibly strong capacity to put a face on. We're really good at faking stuff. We're really good at saying, hey, everything's great when things are not great. And we can come and we can wear really pretty Christmas sweaters and we can read about the peace of Christ that has come in the baby Jesus and ceasefires still aren't going to hold in Syria and your family is still going to argue at Christmas, especially if they voted for different people in the last election and so on. We tend to be a people of fear and war. And by that, I don't mean Americans or high point. I mean human beings. The human race tends to be a race of people who are full of fear and war. And we like to make that feel better by choosing a more anesthetized and sanitized and sophisticated word for it. So we like to call fear anxiety. And we like to call war conflict. Um, the word anxiety is supposed to mean when I feel the feelings of fear and I don't know what I'm afraid of. And the word fear is supposed to designate when I have feelings of fear and I know what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of the truck driving at me, right? Anxiety is like, I feel kind of, I don't really know what I'm afraid of. But that's not really how the word gets used popularly. People use the word anxiety in most contexts where the proper word is fear. But here's the problem with that. Nobody wants to say I'm afraid because it makes you seem weak, unsophisticated, unable to take care of yourself or something like that. So people don't like to say I'm afraid. Or yeah, the reason I said that is because I'm terrified of something. And so we say, well, I'm a little anxious. I'm a little anxious. And yeah, I had some conflict at work. When really there's an emotional war going on at your office where people are brutalizing each other because they're terrified of what will happen if they don't. That's what's really happening. But I'm a little anxious because there's a little conflict at work, is what we say. We're even at the point now culturally 
where like we, we want to take fear and anxiety and conflict and actually say that they're actually marks of like us being more sophisticated or even more intelligent, right? Like there's serious scientific articles about like if you have a lot of anxiety, it's probably because you're smarter and you're a genius, right? Like this article that says, hey, um, I mean, doesn't it make sense evolutionarily that if you were, if you were like just more anxious, you would be generating all kinds of thoughts about what could possibly happen. Every once in a while, one of those would be true. And then you and whatever tribe you were leading away from whatever danger would survive better. And so it makes sense that we would evolve to be more anxious and you would be the one who was the savior of all that or the people in your line who raped and pillaged their way to who you are now. Right? It's not just your doom. It's actually something you can be vaguely proud of, even though you had nothing to do with it. And everybody knows that not only anxiety, but of course depression and probably suicide is the burden of genius. Right? But have you ever noticed, though, we talk a lot about peace, but we're really full of war, anxiety, conflict. Right? And have you ever noticed that the angels in the Bible are, are nothing like that? Right? Have you ever wondered why there's angels in the Bible? I mean, there doesn't have to be angels in the Bible. I mean, in Ezekiel, there's a flying scroll. I mean, there's no reason that God couldn't send, like, f you know, flying UPS newspapers to people. He's perfectly capable of making flying inanimate objects. I mean, in one sense, it lets us know that there are other intelligent, moral beings in the universe besides just us, which is kind of neat, right? But on another level, they are kind of our mirrored opposites. Right? Angels are the beings that are not fooled by the reality that we see. And they see God in all of his glory. They see reality for exactly what it is. And they're completely unconfused by our embodied experience in a broken and fallen world. And so because of that, they're always confident. They're always at peace. They always know exactly what they're there to do. They're totally unflappable. And they don't ridicule us, which is a little astounding. I mean, can you imagine if you were an angel watching humans behave, and then God sent you to go talk to them, what you would say? I mean, I would think the Bible would be full of sarcastic angels, right? Like, like in Joshua. Joshua's like, you know, the angel of the Lord appears. And he's like, are you for us, our enemies? And like, the angel of the Lord just like, he keeps it cool. He's like, neither. I'm just here representing the Lord's armies. As opposed to like, really, you think I would fight with you? Do you have any idea how idiotic you and all of your people are? Yeah, we're gonna, yeah, you're gonna win this one and God's gonna like be with you, but like, are you kidding me? Do you think that I would put my pure foot in any of the mess you're making? But none of them say that. This one shows up in the middle of normal chaos and just says, hey, don't be afraid. I'm bringing news of great joy. In the city of David, a savior has been born to you who is Christ the Lord, right? They just are. And that should let us into something about peace. That the beings in this universe that see the glory of God, that have tasted it, and that you can't lie to them about it and they can't forget it, are always at peace. They're in the company of joy. And they are themselves peacemakers. And creation is their scent. If you look at this passage, 
the main focus of it is that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord, and the glory of God is so revealed in him that it will bring peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. Which means you could summarize it something like this. What's the good news of great joy? It is the glory of the Christ will be the peace of men. That's a non-gender specific men. That's humanity. The glory of Christ is to be the peace of humanity. The glory of Christ is to be the peace of humanity. Now, there's, there's three ways to look at this um, or to work through this. The first is, is that the glory of God is seen in the coming of Christ. That is, Jesus' birth displays what God is really like and how we can really see it and how we can really enjoy it. Now, in Psalm 19, in the Old Testament, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and everything declares his handiwork. And you can see the handiwork of God in everything. If we saw science aright, we would see in it the math of the language of God. We would see the glory of God in all of it. But we have a little bit of a hard time with it. Right? And then later in Psalm 19, it says that in the written revelation, in the story of the revelation of God with his people, the Jewish people, that the glory of God is revealed in that, or the word of God is revealed in that. But there's only one event in the entire biblical history in which multiple legions of angels hover over it and sing directly upon it. This is the revelation of the glory of the God in the highest. In the highest possible way, this thing demonstrates how great— how other, how morally potent, how pure God's rule over all things is in this moment that is the birth of Jesus. Notice, it's not even at the death of Jesus. Now, surely the death of Jesus and everything that would come after is all wrapped up in that moment. But in that moment, this comes forward. Now, there's, there's two parts to that. One is, what the angel says Jesus is, right? He says three things, right? That he is a savior. That is, salvation is something that we receive. It's not something we can do for ourselves. That he is the Christ. The Christ, Christ or Messiah means the same thing. It's just the word for anointed. And there's two offices that get anointed in the Bible, priest and king. That is, that Jesus is the one who is anointed both as priest, that is the one that goes between us and God to bring us to God and to bring God to us, and king, the one who rules and leads. And that's the next designation, Lord, makes that even clear, that Jesus is Lord. Lord means undisputed master. And in his case, of all of creation, seen and unseen. That that's who this baby is. But that is not the full extent of what the angels are singing over. You can kind of look at this as that there's a solo verse and then the choir comes in at the chorus to sing glory in the highest peace on earth. And he keeps going. He says, not only is this the child that's been born, right? But he says, he's been born for you and for all the people, right? For you and for all the people. Now think about this for a second. Since when— has any king really been for all the people? In all the kings of all the ages, of all times, in all places, since when has the person who ruled ever 
really been for all the people? Uh, never is the answer to that question. Never. Right? I mean, shame on you if either when President Obama was running or when President Trump was running, you believed they could possibly, as a limited human being, really be for all the people. And weren't trying to cobble for, to dig together for themselves a minimal coalition in which they could win the election and who which they would mainly represent, even if opposed to and hurting the other group. That's just democracy. Democracy isn't for all the people. Democracy is for the majority coalition. And tyranny is no different. The king is for the lords and the people that you can't ever be for all the people. Nobody's for all the people. And so, do you know what it says about the shepherds? <coughs> they were watching over their feet, their flocks, right? Do you know what it says right before that? It says there were shepherds. <coughs> and what does it say? They were—anybody? Yeah. Translated, I think rightly, living— in the fields, and keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, you might, like, so these are not people who have nice houses in the town. These are people who literally are living in the fields. That is, you go to Israel today. Today, there are people who keep sheep and goats in the hill country of Judea, and they live in tents. They refer to them as Bedouins, right? Bedouins are all over the Near East. They existed, they've always existed in Jerusalem. These are people who live in tents, almost none of whom can read. You can take a tour bus to go see them now, and they'll show you where the guy who was on the roads to Samaria got beat up, probably, maybe, or something like this. And you can buy, like, really cheap trinkets from them that they got from the city. But mainly, they're out there because they keep sheep and goats. And turns out, that's where they eat and live, and there's not a lot of places to graze in downtown Jerusalem. And so these are people who live in tents, Right? If you say to people who live in tents, there's a new king and he's for you, what do you think the first thought that comes to their mind is? <laughs> right. Like Trump's going to bring all the jobs back. <laughs> yeah. Right. I could make jokes about all the other politicians too and myself and you, right? Yeah, right. I am so far out of his purview. So, I mean, if there's a king, who cares? Right? And the angel says, no, the king, this new king, is the first one in human history and the last one that there will ever be who is actually really for all the people. And I know you don't believe me, and so there's going to be a sign for you to prove it. And the proof that this one king is actually for all the people is you will find a child in a stone feeding trough wrapped in cloths. That is, not only is there a child in a stone feeding trough wrapped in cloths, but you are going to find him. And I've come to you to send you to find him. And so God comes and he chooses a field-living Bedouin to find a child in a stone feeding trough, and that event is a sign that this king, the first and last in history, actually is for all the people. Now, 
I've been to India a couple of times, and I spend, unfortunately, a good bit of my time in the slums. And I've been with families who their whole family makes less than a dollar a day. That's poor, okay? The poorest families in the world, their babies lay in cribs. Or something cobbled together that looks like one. You're the poorest people on earth. Literally the poorest people on earth. And they will weave together stuff, and they will put something in it that's soft, and their baby will lie in something. Okay? Jesus laid in less than what a normal baby in the poorest context in the world commonly lays in. And nobody shepherds who live out in the fields were sent to see it, and that was the sign. The sign that this one who is Lord and Savior and Christ, anointed to bring us to God and bring God to us, the true king over all things, the one that it says in Isaiah would be, would, of his, the increase of his government and of peace there would be no end, the one who could be called Almighty God, Wonderful Counselor, the one that Malachi said would be born, or Micah said would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the great king. This one, the first one ever, is for all the people. That is, everyone who's ever existed, everybody you don't like, and you. And in that— actually demonstrates how the king that exists, the God who is there, is really different. And in that difference is something great. And when your, your mind's eye, the seat of your emotion, when, when you realize that, when it comes home and you realize that that's real— you will experience a little tiny taste of what it means to see glory. And that glory drives everything. That glory drives the peace, that drives the joy, that drives the peacemaking, and everything else it is we seek as humans. In the moment— where Luke is telling us important things are happening politically. Augustus is putting out a census. Quirinius is not yet officially governor of Syria, but he's fighting a war in southern Galatia, and his army is stationed in Syria, and he has military control, and he needs to tax everybody, and he needs a census so he can conscript more soldiers so that he can win and beat this tribe in southern Galatia for the glory of Rome— out of that win, he will then become the governor of Syria seven years later. All these important things are happening. New presidents are being inaugurated. And in the middle of that, among some poor people, this little baby is born and put in a trough, and some Bedouin shepherds are sent to see him. That's the sign that shows that the peace that we're after is found in the glory of Christ. Right. The second thing is, is that the peace of men is found in the glory of Christ. The glory of God is found in the, in, the, in, the, in the person of Christ, but the peace of men is found in that glory of Christ. It says five times in the New Testament, God is referred to as the God of peace. The God of peace, the God of peace, the God of all peace in one place. 
And yet, if you, if you look at the human race, there's very little evidence that we are a people who have found peace in something else. The secular experiment has now been going on since the beginning of the Enlightenment, at least. That's to put aside all the secular experience of secular experiments of ancient Greek, Greece and Rome, and the, all these other places, central China, and so on, that all failed as well. We're more anxious than ever. We're more at war than ever. Things aren't getting better. We are alleviating some stresses through the advancements of our technology, but as human beings and in the formation of human societies and of love, we are not doing well. Secularism as a moral and spiritual philosophy has always been bankrupt, and it is showing itself over and over again to be increasingly demonstrated as bankrupt. We just keep doubling down on it and getting worse outcomes. But that doesn't mean that you can look at the world and see the secular or irreligious people and see the religious people and be like, oh, those religious people are all happy. And the secular people, they're all angry. That's not true either. You can go throughout the world where people ascribe to generally religious worldviews, and you'll find the exact same thing. You'll find people who are angry and at war with themselves and with others, full of conflict, anxious. And the reason for that is as we read through the Bible, what we find is, is that— the anxieties and the fears, the conflicts and the war that come in and out of us and that flow between us are part of the condition that humans are in, all of them everywhere. And it's not really their philosophy that determines whether or not they find peace. And so we should probably have learned by now that either conflict, war, anxiety, fear is either our doom Thomas Hobbes is right. Or there is a intervention, something, something else that would come in and create a new reality, something that has the capacity to do that, right? Think about what it says in that verse in Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his governance and of peace, there will be no end. You see, the argument the Bible makes is not, if you have a religious philosophy, you'll be peaceful. If you have a secular one, you won't be. Or if you have a secular philosophy, you won't believe in all that religious superstition, and you'll face the world as it is, and you'll find true resignation. That's—it's never been the biblical argument. The biblical argument is this. We are creatures in our human condition doomed to hatred and anger and conflict and strife and unforgiveness and hopelessness and selfishness and— there is a God who is seeking to invite us into a spiritual divine intervention in which he transforms us spiritually from the inside out through a supernatural miracle of transformation. That is, a savior, not a teacher, not a philosopher, a savior has been born to you. He is the Christ who is the Lord. Of the increase of his governance and of peace, there shall be no end. That is, anywhere where the one who is both Savior Christ and Lord, that is Master, anywhere where he is accepted and received as having authority, and any person whose heart, whose being is brought under the kingship of that Lord, his government increases in that place. His governance comes over you. 
And that governance brings peace with it. And it is increasing in the world. It is finding people who come into the governance of this Lord, of this Savior. And when that happens, he does something, something that is saving, that saves us out of the doom of our condition, something that is not a religious or irreligious philosophy, but is a divine action of salvation. But you'll notice that in the verse what it says is is that that doesn't just automatically happen to the entire earth the moment Jesus is born. It says that in the glory of this Christ, this child, the glory of God is revealed, and peace has come to humans on earth, but a specific group of humans, and that group is those on whom his favor rests. Those on whom his favor rests. That is, God, through the Christ, is bringing joy and peace to those whom he enjoys, which sounds very different than what it means. God brings joy and peace to those he enjoys. That is, when he shows his glory, in his glory there is peace, and out of that apprehension of glory that creates peace, it produces joy. And it says in the verse that that happens to those in whom God is pleased, or the the literal translation is the people of his pleasure, right? Now, it's very easy to read that and, and interpret it legalistically and say, oh, I get it. So it's for all the people, but God really is gonna, is gonna save the good people, right? But that's not what it means at all, right? If you, if you think about the passage, it says that Jesus is born for all the people. And then it says that peace comes on whom his favor rests. So how do you put those two together? How do you put together he's for all the people and that peace comes to those on whom his favor rests? On whom does the favor rest? Is it good people? Is it smart people? Is it educated people? Is it men? Is it women? Is it Americans? Is it Republicans? Is it Democrats? Who are the people on— what is the criteria of this? In what is God pleased? Right? And the Bible answers this very clearly in a number of places, but one of the ones that connects best with this passage is in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. I just read this with me and note the connections with the passage in Luke 2. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, whatever that means, we'll get back to that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. See that? Through whom we've gained access into the, by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace is a word, we, like we are like, grace. Grace means favor. That's what it means. So what that literally means is we have peace with God through the Master Jesus, who is the anointed Christ. Through that Christ, we have gained access by faith, into the favor in which we now stand. It is in God's favor, right? That his glory is revealed, that his peace is received, that his joy is unleashed. Right? And then what does it say after that? And what's the result? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see how it's all there? All the same stuff is there because that's what salvation is. He says something happens through faith called justification. And when that thing happens, 
the result is we have peace with God. And when that happens, through Christ, we have access into God's favor, which results in a hope that we, are, we have tasted of the glory of God, but we have a hope that we're going to experience and see as much glory as the angels who sang that chorus did. The angels who sang glory to God in the absolute highest is seen in this thing right here. All the glory that they saw that we have trouble apprehending, we have a hope <coughs> that we're going to see that the way they see it. And the thought of seeing it, what they were rejoicing in, just the thought that we might yet see it, is enough to carry us through amazing hardships. I think it's one thing to look at the Grand Canyon and say, that's beautiful. It's another thing to hope to see something you've only heard about that you know is so beautiful that thinking about that you might yet see it brings you enough joy to overcome any hardship you could possibly face. That's beautiful. You don't even have to see it. All you have to do is have some conception of what it will be like to see it. And it carries you. And justification comes along with what the Bible um, in one place calls regeneration, which John talks about when he talks about the birth of Jesus. He says, he, that is the Christ, was in the world, but through the—and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That word receive is really important here, right? To those who believed in his name, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see what he's saying? He's saying that it is—here's the people on whom his favor dwells. The people who are humble and willing to receive the Savior that God has given. To admit that he is the rightful Lord, the ruler over everything. And that he has come anointed by God, that is, God has chosen him to be priest and king, and no one else. He has anointed him Savior and priest as the one who God has designated to bring us to God, and he is the undisputed Lord, that is, he is the ruler of all things. There is nothing administratively outside of him. And it is in him that the prophecy that was already then 700 years old, that of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. That is, the people on whom his favor rests is just the people who will receive his favor. That's all. In the child that's born, God gives his favor to all of humanity. In that child is the glory of God. Flowing from the glory of God is peace. With God, with ourselves, and with others, flowing from that experience of peace is joy. And all the gifts that God would give, because out of people who are, who see the glory of God and who have accepted the love of God, and who have experienced the peace of God, and who then feel the joy of God, those people then become peacemakers, and joy fillers, and reconcilers, and forgivers, and people who lead other people into those things. The rest of the time, all we're doing is brokering truces. And you see, in the last passage— he said this at the very end. He said, you see, but just as right, at the right time, while we were still powerless, notice that the issue here is not philosophy, but power. 
Christ died for the ungodly. So the people on whom God's favor rests are the people who are ungodly and who receive him. Those are the criteria. To receive God's favor, to be the people who receive this peace, there's two criteria. You have to be ungodly. You've got that one covered, right? And you have to receive him as Savior and King. That's it. And to people who do that, it says that he does two things. He does a supernatural recreation of your inner world called becoming a child of God. It's a, it's a metaphysical, spiritual thing that cannot be created by a philosophy. It has to happen by the divine spirit of God himself on the basis of forgiveness that comes in Christ. And we are justified. That is, he counts us at peace with him. He gives us his approval in his approval of Christ. Now think about that. If you are at peace with God, and you have the approval of God, and you really believe that, you really believe you're at peace with God, and you have the approval of God, how insecure are you? Not very. How full of anxiety are you? Not very. How much war do you have to make around you? Not a lot. If you really believe you were among the ungodly, and he saved you, and loved you, and poured out a Savior for you, and gave you peace with him, and demonstrated his glory, how hard is it to forgive people whose offenses towards you compared to that are pretty petty, frankly? Not that hard. And how much compassion can you have on other people who are living in anxiety and war and conflict and fear? A good bit, because you feel very emotionally connected to that place. In fact, you're constantly falling back into it as you forget about Jesus because you're not yet an angel. You're still a human here. You don't get to see it all from their perspective. And all this worldliness keeps creeping back in. So you feel the anxieties and fears and angers and control all popping back up to which they have to be reflushed by the beauty and glory of God the truth of the Savior, and the peace of God that comes with it, and the joy that then flows in so that you can begin to walk. It's not enough to say you believe that Jesus is a Savior. There's not enough octane in that. You need to look over the, the manger and you need to see a baby lying in stone with an exhausted mom sleeping on hay and nobody Bedouins who no king has ever been for staring at this little thing and not being able to smell him over the rest of the poop that's around, right? And realize that as you, as you hover over this in your mind's eye, that the glory of God in the highest possible way dwells there. And if your soul caught the smallest whiff of it, you would be filled with a joy and a peace in the prospect of seeing something you have never yet seen, that just in thinking about the fact that you hope yet to see it, will so compel your heart 
with God's glory, that it will stabilize your soul in God's peace, and it will unleash in your feelings God's joy, and it will then release in your life the ability to be a peacemaker, somebody who brings joy and cheerfulness where they go. And if you're the sort of person for whom your struggle with anxiety is just as clinical, it's not—like when you say it's clinical, it's not an excuse because you want to be lumped in with the people who are clinically anxious, when really it's like that because of how you're like. The tension that you'll live in between those two things, of tasting of the glory of Christ and dealing with the ever-present yelling in your heart and mind and in your system, people seeing you glorying in Christ in that will show them something of the value of that glory in ways that they, they just won't see otherwise. It is, it is the reason we bear everything that we bear, not just anxiety. So that people can see third-hand. Anybody who ever comes to Jesus being influenced by any person does so because they're seeing the glory third-hand. They're seeing enough of the glory of God to be interested in the king because somebody is captivated by the glory they experienced in thinking about that they will someday see the glory that the angels see now. It's third-hand glory. That is how intense the glory in the highest is. That it can draw warring, anxious, conflicted, angry, unforgiving, ungodly humans stretched out to its potency in the third degree. And it does every day. And so what we have to do is, if you haven't received him, you need to receive him. You need to believe that if you, if you are ungodly and you receive Jesus, that is, you believe on his name, on his lordship, kingship, savior work, you have the right, God will give you the right to become a children, child of God, and he will make you a child of God. And he will justify you and forgive you and give you his stamp of approval. And if God can be for you, it says in Romans 8, what can be against you? Not even death. And for the rest of us, we have to keep believing the thing we keep forgetting. We are not yet angels. And that may be some time coming. We don't see things the way, they, the way they do, and we're constantly being yelled at in contradiction to the things that they know for sure. And you and I have to continually remind ourselves to believe the gospel and continually look at the things that God says are glorious, which is his Christ, his story, how he's revealed his word, how, how he's doing a work of grace in the people around you through that Christ. And in that— he will bring you back to a place of this has been done for you. In it, God is glorified beyond belief and peace has come to everyone who will believe. And his favor will rest on you. And the result of seeing that glory and experiencing that peace is a joy unparalleled and unheard of in the history of the universe, because there is one king who really is for all people. As we sing the song, as the worship team comes up, 
Um, I hope that you will pray as well as sing or not sing, and that you will either try to reaffirm your desire to see, that you'll open yourself to see what God would want to show you, or that you would believe and set your faith on his name, or just do something. God is present and listening. He's not just a philosophy. He's a being. And he wants to interact with you right now. And you may not see him or feel him like the angels, but you can access and perceive and see and walk with him in faith. Sight is not the only sense there is in this world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you and try to experience something of the happiness that is supposed to be found in us remembering each season the glory of Christ, born as a child, the only king for all people, I pray that right now you would help us to experience him and believe in him as Savior, as the Anointed One, the Christ, and as Lord, and as real. That Luke tells us that it was during the time of Caesar Augustus, it was when Quirinius was fighting his war, it was on a real day in a real town for a real humanity. I pray that now, by your Spirit, you would bring home to us the absolute reality of Christ. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.